0: Welcome to the No Regrets Podcast with Kate. Today I'm sitting here with Emily Earhart. She's the Southern California Regional Development Leader for the Adult Congenital Heart Association. And I wanted to talk to her today because not only is she representing ACHA, but she's a patient herself. So I wanted to learn more about her congenital heart disease how her life has been growing up. So welcome, Emily. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me, Kathleen. It's great to be on
0: your show. Great. Well, thank (laughs) you. I'm so excited to talk to you. So let's start with who you are, how old you are, if you're willing to share your age, like where you're from, and a little bit about you and your congenital heart disease, and then we'll go from there.
1: Great. Well, like you said, my name's Emily Earhart. I'm born and raised here in Southern California. I'm 35 years old, which means I was born mid-1980s. And I was born with a congenital heart defect, which was not diagnosed um, in utero or even at my birth. I was diagnosed at about six months old. My pediatrician realized I didn't have a femoral pulse. I didn't have a pulse in my leg. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And so he said, I think she needs to go see a cardiologist. And uh, they diagnosed me with a complex congenital heart defect called Shone syndrome. Shone syndrome is one of the more rare kind of congenital heart defects. It's multiple left-sided heart defects. So I was born with a, a co of the aorta. Like the aorta was kind of kinked. I was also born with a bicuspid aortic valve, which had two flaps instead of three. And then I had a parachute mitral valve. So my mitral valve didn't open all the way because it kind of had like strings holding it back. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And the last thing was um, a stiffer left ventricle. So the left side didn't pump very well. So I had a whole bunch of different kind of things going on. The most pressing of which was uh, my aortic uh, coarctation. And that was replaced right away at 11 months old at St. Vincent's Hospital in Los Angeles. And that's the first open heart surgery saved my life. I probably wouldn't have lived past the age of one if I didn't have that. Really? Yeah. And it totally transformed me. I became—I um, had been a baby that just slept all day long and sweated when I ate a bottle. And after that surgery, I plumped up. I was lively, happy, loved eating, seemingly normal little girl. My parents did know at the time that I still had other defects. They, but you know, no one really knew that much of what I was or was not able to do. So it was kind of like trial by error as a child. I remember my, um, my, in my elementary school, I, uh, running the laps in PE, I think it was in first or second grade and just collapsing on the field, passing out. So it was a learning curve to see what I could and could not do. I ended up growing up with really a lot of physical limitations. You know, I couldn't run, I couldn't swim couldn't play sports, stuff like that. So I was really just waiting to get a little bit bigger before I had my next surgery. I started going into a heart failure at the age of 15. Wow. And that's when they decided that it was time to replace my aortic valve. And But after, didn't they fix it when you were 11 months? So that was my aorta, uh, which is the main vessel that goes out of the, uh, the heart and carries blood to the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. Um, The door at the bottom of that vessel, the valve, valve was what was defective, yeah. And so, you know, it got me to the age 15, but then it needed to be replaced. Fast forward about 10 years from since my last surgery, uh, well, more like 15. So we're in the 90s now, and surgery has advanced. And there now, all of a sudden, I think most of us with CHD can probably... Identify with we kind of wait for technology to catch up to us and catch up to what we our bodies need, and so at the age of 15 in 1999, I had the Ross procedure at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. At the time, it was a really kind of complex, newish surgery, and Dr. Starnes, who was the surgeon at CHLA, was was just like the maestro of this surgery. And whereas other doctors were having you know lower uh, success rates with the surgery, he was just knocking them all out of the park. So, we went ahead with this complex surgery, which basically was taking my healthy pulmonary valve and putting that in my aortic spot because it. The theory was is it's a lot better. You get better quality of life and longer a longer lasting valve if you have your own tissue valve in that aortic spot. So. <laughs> so I'm looking at her strangely, because I'm
0: like, I just had my pulmonary valve replaced. They told me I needed
1: one. So if
0: they're taking your pulmonary valve. Which was healthy. Which was healthy, and moving it, what did they replace the pulmonary valve with?
1: So they put a donor tissue valve, which is sometimes oh, so called just- a homograph valve. So a tissue valve from um, somebody else, from a cadaver that was donated, went into my pulmonary spot. And the idea behind this ingenious surgery is that in a young girl who's 15 years old, she doesn't have to be on blood thinners, and she can live a really high quality of life because she's not mechanical valve or pig valve or anything that doesn't function quite as well or would require blood thinners. So it was phenomenally successful because I started living a quality of life I'd never experienced before, I got involved in uh, some sports in school and theater and uh, I graduated at the top of my class, went to like my dream school, UC Berkeley. I traveled and studied abroad. Um, Kind of just, it was like opening this Pandora's box. All of a sudden for the first time in life, I could do things and live like uh, a quality of life that I had never experienced before. Almost like a quote unquote normal person. Right. Right, Yeah. Yeah. But for me, it was like all of a sudden I had been like, injected with some kind of drug. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I have to devour this thing called life because it's incredible. And so I, um, yeah, I just kind of seized every moment and opportunity and started living very large. Um, after I graduated from UC Berkeley, I enrolled in culinary school. I went into the hospitality industry, had an amazing opportunity to open a restaurant with my dad wow. and my brother, my family, um, which was incredible. I ended up moving pursuing graduate school in London. Uh, I lived in Europe for several years and just traveled all, um, all over Europe, which was uh, you know the chance of a lifetime.
0: Um, I spent a semester in London in 2005
1: you? yeah for study abroad. Oh cool. yeah
0: so I know how amazing London is.
1: Yeah yeah. fast pace, yeah, lots of walking. yeah <laughs> no driving yeah. Incredible pubs. <laughs> yes.
0: And the food, everybody warned me that the food was horrible. Or if you don't like Indian food, you're screwed because they have, that's all they have. Mm-hmm. And I don't like curry or Indian food. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I did try it when I was over there, but I didn't think the food was bad. No. And I love the European sandwiches and... Yeah. Like, it's just, yeah. Yeah.
1: When I was there mm-hmm. in 2010, they were having a real food revival. This, like, farm to plate uh-huh. kind of return to the to um, the rural farm style of, of of eating fresh and eating good food. And I, I, I thought it was phenomenal cuisine right. when I was over there. I loved yeah. it. And London is like L.A. in the sense that it's it's got um, a hodgepodge of cultures yep. and a mixture of so many cuisines. Yep.
0: Yeah. I loved it. I loved my time there. I would, I would go back in a heartbeat. So... I guess my question I wanted to circle back to your like your first surgery or when you were diagnosed what was the mm-hmm. technology like mm-hmm. then I mean obviously we know it gets better and we'll probably talk more about mm-hmm. how technology has advanced and time is on our side mm-hmm. I had a doctor tell me 5 years ago when I had my pulmonary valve replacement I have a bovine valve that
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: could last 10 15 years but in that 10 to 15 years who knows where we will be Yeah. Right with technology. But how was it when you were diagnosed, when you were born and your first surgery? What was the
1: technology like then? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm not really sure because my, my, obviously it's my parents who experienced it and remember it most. But looking back at photos from that time, it looks starkly different from what I experienced, you know, as a 15 year old. And then again, when I had my, third and fourth open-heart surgeries more recently as an adult. Just in general, the hospital experience, you know, shared hospital rooms. I mean, (laughs) the hospital stays were longer. I mean, I remember I was in ICU for, like, three months. I had a lot of
0: complications when I was younger, like, at five, five years old. And they would – you were, like, bedridden, right? And they would just flip you every 30 minutes because of bed sores. Yeah. Now – Within 24 hours or after open heart surgery or these major surgeries, they're like, we want you walking three times a day. Yeah. Because they have found you're just bedridden you can get pneumonia quicker, mm-hmm. faster. You're more prone to get pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, the bed stores and atrophy and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So now they're like, get up and start walking the halls. Like, they didn't care. Yeah. They even have, like, a – I call it I called it, like, a wheelchair, but it's a standing wheelchair that you can lean on that has wheels yeah. so that you can walk the halls even though, yeah. you, you know, you're not stable. Yeah. And, and then they get on you when you – you're not walking enough. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah.
1: The they, they definitely don't treat you as if you're fragile and going to break exactly. anymore. Yep. Um, you're right. You'd have a lot more bed restrictions and limited exercise, even with catheterizations. I had probably about 10 or 11 catheterizations throughout my childhood. And it was always, you know, lay flat, don't move your leg for, like, six hours. It's still
0: that way. Is
1: it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had catheters recently, and, yes, it's still that way. Well, I know sometimes they do them through the wrist. Yeah, and it depends they, they, on, they, like, what side of the heart they're going to do, Yes. Yeah. So there, I know there's different ways. But, there, but definitely the technologies, they don't put, like, a um, sandbag on your groin anymore and, like, leave a giant bruise on you, like, you know, they the adhesives and stuff for closing um, wounds is just it, it's like Saran Wrap now. You know, yeah. It, it, so and and definitely, I think the advancement in like scar technology and stuff, scars heal a lot quicker and less noticeably than they did in the past. I mean, you know, people still keloid and stuff like I keloid, so my scar is more noticeable. But what's keloid mean? Um, so keloid is when like the um. As your skin repairs and heals itself from a scar, the um, the tissue kind of builds up. Like kind you get of like, like a raised, bottle. yeah, yeah bottle. you get like a raised raised skin. Okay, sometimes red, yeah, and it's just genetics that determines how you scar.
0: What was your so you had a surgery at fifteen, and then you had another one at thirty.
1: Yeah, so the story continues. My heart story um, picks up at the age of thirty. At 15 When I had my valves replaced, they told me that I probably had, and they didn't really know because there wasn't anyone with like 20 year valves of the kind that I had. Um, they gave it 15 to 20 years. I think some doctors said 10 to 15, some said 15 to 20, and then they would need to be replaced because they have um, a shelf life. And so at about the age of 30, I started experiencing some um symptoms uh getting more short of breath started coughing a lot more uh when I would lay flat to sleep it would kind of feel like I was drowning just a heart
0: failure yeah like I was
1: you know the the fluid was backing up into my lungs I have to prop myself up to sleep and So obviously after a series of tests, they realized, oh, yeah, we need to replace both your your valves. So I had, in 2015, at the age of 30, I had both my aortic and pulmonary valve replaced. And at that point, since I was early 30s, newly married, hadn't decided about kids, they decided they'd put in tissue valves again. This time, because the technology, of course, had advanced a lot, I had a bioprosthetic valve put in the aortic spot which basically means I didn't have to be on blood thinners, but it was a little bit more superhuman than just a regular tissue valve. And then they put, again, another um, donated homograph or a cadaver valve in my pulmonary spot. Again, I started doing great after that surgery. Like, immediately I was, you know, I I could sleep flat again. It was a much more difficult experience going through it as uh, open-heart surgery as an adult because it's, I mean... You're used to being a lot more independent, and all of a sudden you have to be, become dependent um, on everyone else for your recovery, as well as put your life on hold with work and everything like that. And, and then also just being older, and you're not quite as resilient you know, as you are when you're an adolescent. You don't bounce back quite as much. So it was a little bit longer of a recovery than I expected, and, and that was difficult. But I was starting to feel better, which was amazing until I got about one year out from that surgery, and I started becoming symptomatic again. I thought, oh, something's not right. Well, it turned out that um, when they replaced those valves in the 2015 surgery, they had put in a little bit larger of a valve than what I had had before, um, size-wise. It was enabling greater blood flow which is why I was feeling so much better but what it meant was that my one remaining uh, wonky valve the parachute mitral valve was totally just not able to keep up you know it became the weakest link and it just it finally failed and so um, I went back in for surgery again because unfortunately the technology is such at this point that mitral valves really have the only option is to replace them open heart they don't do them transcatheter, although it might be changing, you right. know, another year or two. You know, there. I know there's clinical trials of mitral valve replacements, trans, transcatheter. So for me, I had an, my fourth open heart surgery in 2017 to replace the mitral valve. And my only option really was a mechanical valve. So um, since they were in there, they decided to give me a two-for-one deal. <laughs> I love when they do that. <laughs> um, and they put a mechanical valve in my aortic spot. Um, as well, because they're like, you know, we're just gonna. This will prevent you from having another open heart surgery soon. You've had enough for now. <laughs> yes. Let's try to reduce the future future numbers of them. So now I've got two mechanical valves, um, which means I have a double click, and uh, I have one tissue pulmonary valve, which will probably need to be replaced in maybe another ten years. But again, knock on wood, technology is catching up to to what our, our body needs are. Hopefully, that'll be transcatheter. So,
0: yes, crossing fingers, yeah. One. Yeah. Yeah. With my pulmonary valve replacement, I was like, can't you do that through the groin? Mm-hmm. They're like, well, with you, you don't have a pulmonary valve. Mm-hmm. So, there's nothing to attach it to. So, they have to, when they put in the pulmonary valve, it's like on a ring. Yeah. And so, when that wears out, and my understanding is it wears out because we're young. Mm-hmm. Our immune system is really well. Over time, it will yeah. wear out faster because yeah. it wears down. So once that ring is in there, they can just go transcatheter and plop it in there.
1: Mm-hmm. You have pulmonary atresia, or you had you had something that you, you didn't really even have a pulmonary. Oh, it was, or, it, was it was gone. It was gone. It was
0: gone. So. For tetralogy of flow, you have one of the defects, tetra meaning four, is pulmonary stenosis. Okay. So great. that means the narrowing of the pulmonary valve. So when you're a child and they go and do quote unquote corrective surgery, they will, at least for me, I don't know how they do it now, but in the 70s, <laughs> I'm stating my age here. They put a like a balloon up there and widen that pulmonary valve, that pulmonary artery. Mm -hmm. But when they do that, it it stretches the valve. And over time, they have found that we need our pulmonary valve replaced, right? But of course, it took decades, you know, probably two decades to figure that out. Right. And so I never saw a specialist. So I didn't know that that was in my future. So I developed congestive heart failure, Mm. just like couldn't lay flat, couldn't breathe. Just, it was awful. And so when I went into the hospital for congestive heart failure, they found out I didn't have a pulmonary valve. Mm. And so they said, and one of the questions I want to ask you, but I had so much trauma. Like I literally had PTSD. My congestive heart failure doctor Mm. was like, you are so traumatized because it had been decades since I had seen the doctor because you think you're fine. You know, you have so many good years, right?
1: Yeah. He
0: wasn't, he was afraid I wasn't going to come back for the surgery. And I said, well, what happens if I don't have the surgery? And I knew I was going to have the surgery, but he said, you know, you may have 10 years. Well, I had, I was in Seattle at the time and I'm from Southern California as well. And I had come home to visit because I was getting treated up in Seattle and... I went down to the beach just to put my feet in the water. Mm -hmm. So I was in San Clemente, and I was by the pier, and I just put my feet in the water, and I'm walking back up. So literally, it's like a little berm, nothing major by the pier. And I will tell you, I felt this pop in my chest. Mm -hmm. And I got to my car, and I just knew at that moment I wouldn't have a year. You know, you just know your body. So when you explain this to your doctors, they think you're crazy. But when they got in there, I had no, like, usually they see some kind of tissue kind of attached, kind of, like you said, strings just kind of like floating around. There was nothing. And I equate that pop to just like popping and disintegrating. I mean, obviously I'm not inside my body, but that's just intuitively like you just know. Yeah. And so they were like, you had nothing, no tissue whatsoever. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. One of the questions I want to ask you is, um, I had spoken to Susan Frankie a couple episodes ago. We both have tetralogy of flow, mm-hmm. and we both talked about how doctors or hospital, you know, hospital personnel do not look at the emotional support part mm-hmm. of what we go through, right? Yeah. There's no real support of. You know, when you're a child going through that, Mm -hmm. did you experience, as an adult, did you experience any kind of PTSD, any kind of, like, flashbacks or just freaked out? I mean, I was so freaked out. I was having breakdowns all the time, Yeah, you know, and you don't know why. I mean, yeah, it's scary, but it's just that little girl kind of playing out as an adult and you don't really know what's going on. Did
1: you experience that? Absolutely. Like I said uh, earlier, my surgery, my first surgery as an adult was pretty traumatic um, in large part because I had a couple of rehospitalizations right afterwards, which weren't necessarily atypical, particularly for someone like myself who has a lot of scar tissue on my heart. I ended up having bacterial endocarditis, and I had to go back into the hospital for that, and then I had went into rapid AFib and had to get cardioverted back in the hospital. I mean, all within like just a couple weeks of having had that open heart surgery. So, I was I was a little I'm I am like the biggest optimist and like just super duper positive about everything, but by that third hospitalization, I was just like I am over this. Yes. I am I like this is just Too much, you know, and even in the recovery process, because it took so much longer, I think than I expected. I remember a lot of times just, just being so, so overwhelmed and just so emotionally overloaded and burdened um, and wanting it to progress to go faster or more linearly, you know, and yeah, there's, there's a huge, as, as an adult going through this especially because it's a, a repeat chronic it's not just a one and done and you're fixed necessarily um, because even when you do have really like you said great periods of great health it isn't necessarily it's not going to last forever you know as most of us CHD patients need reoperations, need ongoing treatment we should have ongoing treatment and see a specialist but I think the psychological toll of that is something that In general, and maybe up until recently, I I think you're right, a lot of medical providers weren't as conscious of. I think part of it is because pediatrics tend to treat the whole patient, the whole kid, and understand the kind of neurological or cognitive development that goes along with the different ages of of childhood. Whereas I think adults as a practice, medically speaking, um, adult cardiology, it's Usually, it's been all acquired um, oh, heart, yeah, you know, um, acquired heart disease, disease like yeah. you know, clogged arteries and heart attacks and stuff. And so, I I I think it is this is new terrain because we are living longer because we do need care longer in our lives and need ongoing care. This subspecialty, this this subspecialty field of adult congenital heart disease, is now creating this new class of doctors, and I think they are very the doctors that I've engaged with um, throughout the country and here in Southern California are very much aware of that, and and are trying to speak to that and trying to figure out ways to support the kind of emotional and psychological needs of their patients, and and in and, and to. To their credit, you know, they've already got very full plates just trying to figure out how to treat us. And so they don't necessarily have the capacity um, or the, the hospital systems don't necessarily have the capacity oftentimes to, to, to address that. And that's, that is actually how I um, came across the Adult Congenital Heart Association was because after the, my surgery at age 30 with those multiple hospitalizations and just feeling so emotionally over overburdened, I just thought, why is there not more support for me to go through this? I mean, I was very blessed to have my fan, like an immense support from my husband and my parents and my family and friends. But it was like there was, it's, I felt like the, the, the medical field did not quite, there was some kind of gap that wasn't sure. meeting another set of needs for the patients. And um, that's when, you know, I did some Google searching and found the Adult Congenital Heart Association which was founded by heart patients about 22 years ago um, on the East Coast, specifically for the purpose of peer support. And now they've grown into a national organization that tackles a lot of CHD issues on a whole lot of fronts, including um, advocacy, research, accreditation program, which um, tries to create universalized standards of care for adult congenital heart patients. But at its core, it's still... um, Really, is a support and education organization, supports patients with webinars and conferences. Legislation to get laws
0: passed so Mm -hmm. that healthcare, you know, there's money, there's funding for Mm -hmm. more research. Mm -hmm. Because heart defects are the number one birth defects Mm -hmm. in the United States, if not globally, right? Yeah. And where one in 100 babies will have a congenital heart disease. Congenital meaning born with a heart disease. Yes. Versus acquired, which is the high blood pressure and the cholesterol and the heart attacks and things like that. So that's what I was going to bring up was the ACHA has some great resources. They've got peer-to-peer ambassadors, right? Mm -hmm. So if you need support. And even though you and I and a lot of other people have a great support system with family and friends, you want to talk to somebody who's been through it because it's hard to explain. Mm -hmm. I think some people think, you know, Oh, well you're fine. You look great. You're healthy Mm -hmm. as a horse, but are you really fine? You know, like it's challenging to go through life and you can't run. Like I can't run. Like I can jog for a little bit, Mm -hmm. but when your mind wants to run Mm -hmm. and you can't, (laughs) it's really difficult. right? And so I think the, I just, learned about the Adult Congenital Heart Association about five years ago when I was up in Seattle at University of uh, Washington Me- Medical Center, saw a flyer. Mm-hmm. And so far, it's been, like, my experience has been a great organization. Just the people, your role's new for in California. They're mm-hmm. growing. The people I've worked for, I've blogged for the ACHA. The People have always been great, and there's always webinars. I did take a or I did uh, listen to a webinar early on when I first found out about it on Tetralogy of Flow, and I learned so much. Mm. So, the webinars are great, yeah. So, it's a really good resource to get what you need. And if they don't have it, I'm sure they know somebody who does, right? Yeah,
1: well, and that's the um, really unique thing about ACHA is that it isn't simply uh, a patient association or organization. It's also um, a medical professional association. So uniquely, we support both patients and providers. Okay. Uh, And we have a medical advisory board that is helping to drive a lot of our um, research initiatives, our accreditation program. And what I think it uniquely does, and it's perfectly suited for adult congenital heart cardiology, is it means the patients and the doctors are being kind of brought together under one umbrella, which I think we've been speaking to there are the kind of the whole patient, the whole needs of the patient that, it, with a chronic illness like congenital heart disease, you need to address. And I, I think providers providers understand and realize that, which is why this growing field of adult congenital cardiology is 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 becoming more involved in partnering with patient patient groups like us. Sure.
0: We went to an event a couple weekends ago, the Los Angeles Benefit for the Adult Congenital Heart Association, and the s- statistics are astounding. What did they say? 1.4 million adults are living with congenital heart disease, yeah. and only like maybe 20% are registered or known. Yeah. So we are living longer Yeah. because of just plain and simple, technology. And so, of course, it's a new territory because... I know for me, my mortality rate would have been I wouldn't have lived past 18 if I weren't, you know, fixed or had
1: corrective surgery as a child. You wouldn't have lived a year. Yeah. So, yeah, it used to be probably just before us, the statistic used to be, let's say 50 years ago, that only 10% of congenital heart patient children lived past 18. That's insane. And right now, that has reversed. 90% of babies born with congenital heart disease will live well beyond 18 years old. And That's fantastic. And so, I just got chills. Like it's yeah. it's fantastic. <laughs> and and so we for the first time in history, we now have more adults living with CHD than we do children because all these children are growing up into adults. It's it's a really good problem to have. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. So I wanted to circle back and ask you
0: so you had multiple things wrong with your, you know, the heart defect. Why did they only fix the valves? What about the other things that were wrong? So or or by fixing the valves then it helped your ventricle pump better and so is that what happened?
1: Well, yeah, so the the one defect that I was born with that has yet to be repaired or addressed is my stiff left ventricle yeah. and that is something that they can't repair uh, unless you were, you know, I had a heart transplant or something and had a totally new ventricle. But the my left ventricle's function is extended by relieving the other defects. Okay. Um and so I definitely have greater longevity on my on my ventricle because I've had the other defects addressed. Okay. Um but I think all of us that have complex congenital heart disease It's just kind of fixing or repairing, I should say, issues to reset the clock. And I remember what a cardiologist once once told me that each time we do some kind of procedure, we're just resetting the clock, the timer, until the next intervention is going to be needed. Interesting. And the idea behind that is is just simply that we're never 100% fixed. We will need ongoing treatment and care and intervention. And hopefully with enough time and enough medical advancements, they become minimally more and more minimally invasive, can do more and more incredible things that we never thought was possible. My mom and I used to always joke when I was a kid that if I wait long enough, they'll be able to laser beam a heart valve through my eyeball <laughs> to, to replace a, a heart valve. And it's, I mean, honestly, that...
0: That might happen. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I had a doctor tell me the same thing in 2014 when he said, you know, these valves will last 10 or 15 years, but time is on your side, right? Yeah. Time is on your side. Yeah. And so while I believe that, Mm
1: -hmm. we have
0: other, like you had a bacterial infection. So Mm -hmm. did I. I just got one too. And Mm -hmm. it's awful. Yeah. So, I mean, we do have like precaution. I mean, there's nothing that we, I know, there's nothing I could have done to prevent contracting an infection right but it's just things that you have to consider now like I never considered my current cardiologist you know Dr. Albahosen, mm-hmm. no more tattoos <laughs> he's on the tattoo on my foot he's like no more tattoos I was like whatever and then I was like okay I probably should listen to him but now that I've contracted an infection you're sure bet that I will never <laughs> have another tattoo because I don't even want to chance it it's not even yeah. worth it
1: Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's interesting. It is a little bit of a paradox with with all the advances in medicine and that we're able to live so much longer. I think it does give us this like new lease on life in a way and a quality of life that, that lets us think we can kind of just live as large as possible. But then that reality check sets in and you realize, no, I can't do everything. I still have to live cautiously, you know, I, I am still vulnerable and human and um, you know that that's a really hard thing to I as both a kid but as an adult as well to to have to set limits on yourself or to pace yourself while also still trying to live as largely and fully as, as you can. Sure. Has
0: your philosophy on life changed throughout the years? I you said that you're mostly optimistic and a positive person in general, but has your perspective changed throughout the years.
1: You know, it's funny I I mean I I think we're all automatically faced with our mortality at a young age as CHD patients and I think being born in the 80s and the technological advancements and kind of future of of my life was in you know, unknown. It was an unknown. And so I I think, yes, growing up, I always in the back of my mind thought that I wasn't going to live a long life, even though nobody told me that. I think I just assumed because as a kid I picked up on that things were unknown. And so I, I, I think that kind of fed my desire once I had that surgery at age 15 to live as largely as possible. Because you
0: didn't know when it would end. Or- right. Right. Maybe it could end tomorrow. Yeah.
1: So you lived like it was yeah. your last. My day. last year, yeah. So I lived each year like it was my last year, which was incredible. I lived, you know, I I did I did everything I wanted to do in a way, even if it was kind of impulsive or didn't make sense, like long term career wise, because I thought, well, maybe I'm not going to have a career, you know, so I'm just going to pursue what I love. And I, it's funny because I never really realized that I thought that way or felt that way until my wedding day. My dad gave, traditionally, the dad's speech. And he said that people kept asking him if he was excited about my wedding as it was coming up. And he said, I was like, no, no, I'm not nervous or excited or anything. And then he realized it was because he'd never allowed himself to think that I would get married. And I would reach my wedding day. Aww. And and of course everyone was, was crying. Boy, of yeah. <laughs> uh, the champagne helps. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but to realize that my parents felt that way too. That they didn't know how long I was going to live. Just because we didn't know what technology uh, medic- medicine was going to enable us to live. And so... Um, it is interesting, getting back to your point, has my perspective changed? I think it has because now being in my mid-30s, I have come to accept that I may live to be 90 years old. <laughs> and that's an amazing privilege to, um, to think, oh, maybe I should plan. Maybe I should, you know, save for retirement. Because honestly, in my 20s, and I guess, you know, what 20-year-old thinks about that, but I, you know, I didn't think, oh, I should save for retirement. I won't make it to retirement, you know? And now that's a nice, a nice burden to have is to think I should plan. And I, you know, I wonder now, I, I think about the kids that are growing up with CHD now who can see our generation or the generations before them that have kind of pioneered this new subspecialty of adult congenital cardiology, if they will, you know, they have they have um, us as an exa- as examples of the hopeful, like full and thriving lives that they can have. But I wonder if it means that they'll start planning, and I think they should, you know, plan for college, plan for a career, plan to get married and have kids, and don't live too impulsively, (laughs) you know, I I wonder if that's going to, if that'll change. I mean, I'm sure the fear will always still be there as it is probably with any chronic illness. But I think the reality is, is that we can plan now. And we, and, you know, we should, but we should still also live as if each year's our last year. Because then you're living a good life.
0: Right. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. And I've never thought of it that way. So... You know, this is the No Regrets podcast. This was born out of somebody asking me, what's your 3, 5, 10-year plan? You've been wandering, right? And now that you say that, I never, maybe that's why I'm so passionate about people living with no regrets and not, I don't say for retirement, I, I am not worried about it. For some reason, I am not worried about it. But I know when I had my fifth open heart surgery five years ago, I was like, I'm living another 40 years, pointing to all my doctors, going, right? We're all on the same page. Like, I'm living till I make like 80, right? Like, <laughs> this is gonna work out, right? Yeah. You know, so I, I am optimistic that I will live to my, until I'm 80, but I'm not planning like I'm living till I'm 80. Mm-hmm. I'm so not worried about it. So that's interesting that you say that because maybe that's somewhere deep down
1: Yeah, I maybe deep down you don't believe it. Maybe maybe I don't
0: or if I do I know everything's gonna be fine. Yeah. I've had and I'm sure you have your stories of divine intervention and just Mm -hmm. miracles and blessings that you don't know how it worked out, you don't know why you're still here, like I'm not going to worry about it.
1: Yeah, I don't, and that's no, very
0: strange to think that. But maybe, yeah, deep down, I'm like, I, everything else has worked out because if I'm not dead right now, then I'm meant to be here, right? Period. And so I'm supported somewhere out there, and I will live the life that I'm supposed to. I'm not going to worry about it. Does that make sense? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. No, we're living embodiments of that things don't have to go to plan and they won't go to plan and things don't have to be planned out to be successful. Right. So so then why would we start planning now? I totally get yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just <laughs> It's going to work out yeah, somehow.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could die you know, tomorrow or next week or I might live to 80 or 90 and my finances will work itself out. <laughs> I don't
1: know. Well, and I, you, you know, I don't my know. My mom and I always joke and this is, like, so dark. But it's like, maybe tomorrow I'll get hit by a bus. And all of this worry about dying from heart disease will be for nothing because right. I got hit by a bus. Right, exactly. You know? Exactly. And then we'll be like, oh, well, that was a waste of, you know, a right. million plus dollars on medical oh, bills. million, yes. <laughs> Several million, probably,
0: yes. So, do you have, well, I have a few questions. Did they tell you... You couldn't have kids or you shouldn't have kids. What was the
1: prognosis on that? Um, So growing up, when I was really young, obviously, we never really even talked about it. And it probably wasn't until I was maybe 18 years old, I was still seeing my pediatric cardiologist, and he would just say, don't get pregnant, you're going to give me gray hairs, you know. (laughs) So it was always, it was always kind of joked about, but basically communicated that you shouldn't have kids. And so I kind of just assumed that I won't have kids. I, I, but I always, I'm, I really, I mean, most women think about or want to, you know, experience that mothering uh, experience and, so um, I, I've, I've always wanted to have kids. Really hasn't been until the last, you know, in my 30s where I've really thought about it a lot more seriously and have really wished that I had thought about it and considered it and talked about it with my doctor a lot earlier because now there are um, a lot of women out there having successful pregnancies that, you know, have really, gosh, what's the phrase, um, defied the odds. Uh, I, I do I think if I was to have any regret, it would be that I didn't have a conversation earlier with my doctors and explored that as an option um, because now I'm at the point with my two mechanical valves that it really it'd be really risky. like and I know I know there are women who do have mechanical valves that have had had carried pregnancies successfully. But for me and my personal, condition, it's just too high risk.
0: Do you have any brothers and sisters?
1: Yes. So part of um, the sweetness of of not having any kids myself is that I have a lot of nieces and and nephews. And and so uh, my husband and I love being aunt and uncle, playing aunt and uncle, and then being able to go home and (laughs) give the children back and go to sleep (laughs) in a quiet, quiet little house. (laughs) Yeah. I was always
0: told... That I could have children, I would just be, have to be monitored really closely. Mm-hmm. And I do not have a desire to have children, mm-hmm. so I don't have children. But like you, like my sister mm-hmm. and I are 10 years apart. She started young, so mm-hmm. my oldest nephew and I are only 7 years apart.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're
0: closer in age than my sister and I. And so I grew up with them. You know, I had that kid experience, and now they have kids. Mm-hmm. So I have great nieces and nephews. So I'm a grant aunt. Mm. They call me grantee. Super cute. <laughs> I love That's so it. cute. So I have that experience too. You get to hang out with them and then go home or send them back home. There is a lot of women that have success or mm-hmm. who just say, screw it, I'm not going to listen to my doctor. I'm going to yeah. do this and yeah. hope the best. And it usually works out. Yeah. How is the Adult Congenital Heart Association educating cardiologists – not specialist Mm -hmm. cardiologists, if a patient comes to them and they have one of the congenital heart diseases, to know that, I'm sorry, I don't have the capacity or the knowledge to treat you properly. Mm -hmm. You need to go over here. How? Because I was just told as younger, you just need to see a cardiologist every year. So I Mm -hmm. went to a cardiologist, and every year it was like, what are you doing here? i in the waiting room. I'm the youngest person there. You're fine. So I skipped a lot of years and didn't go. Yeah. And then I thought I need to go. So I was seeing a doctor before everything went downhill. And I had an echocardiogram. Everything looked fine. December 2013, I had my open heart surgery in November. So almost a full year. I had a, uh, echocardiogram because I had my gallbladder removed. And so I had to have cardiac clearance. You wow. look great. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, I landed in the hospital in September of 2014, and they're telling me I don't have a pulmonary valve. And I'm going, how did I have an echo like oh my gosh. nine months ago? And hit that person not see it. Yeah. So I guess my question to you is, and it's just a general question, like how – how are we educating just standard cardiologists that, hey, you need to refer these people out yeah. to a specialist? Yeah.
1: So it's a big task. Yeah, I know it is. I'm not doubting um, that at all. And it is a very common experience what you describe. Yes. I've, hear, I've heard so yes. many stories of people who just continue going to see a general cardiologist not knowing that they should see a specialist and their cardiologist not knowing that they should see a specialist. Um, at the end of the day, we no one can force a doctor to give up or refer their patients to another oh, doctor. Of course, right. But certainly I think the key word is education about um, the importance of um, a CHD patient being in specialty care by um, an adult congenital specialist. And so to that extent, uh, We have a few uh, staff members in the outreach positions like myself where we are starting to have more of, as an organization, a regional presence and start to disseminate more of our educational materials and resources to general cardiologists' offices in, in addition to the programs throughout Southern California that are specialty programs. Or hybrid programs. Sure. So so yeah, we are getting out there, um, getting volunteers to to share our educational brochures and information. But like I said, ultimately I can't force we can't no one can can be forced, but people can be educated about about getting the right patients in the right care. From what I have heard from a lot of the specialists, a lot of the the cardiology is a small ish world. Doctors do refer their patients, um, transfer their patients to subspecialty cares, because no one, no, no doctor wants to take care of a, a case they can't, they can't that's over their head or or that they, is not their specialty. At least if it's extreme enough, <laughs> right? Um, but you're right. It it might something might still be missed very easily. Sure. And so that's our So ultimately, I would say ACHA's biggest outreach is educating the patients themselves, making them be the ones who decide for themselves where to get their care. We have a clinic directory of all the specialty programs, um, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And, and just to equip people with enough information to become their own best advocate and to advocate yep. for the best care for themselves. And to get multiple opinions. Standard practice, get lots of opinions, you know. Sure.
0: Well, good. So I end my podcast interviews with this two standard questions so you've mentioned that you have one regret of not talking to your doctors about having children do you have any other regrets I mean it sounds like
1: you've lived a fantastic life and, and will continue <laughs> to do so yeah you know I think hindsight is always twenty twenty, and I definitely think uh back to times in my life where I wish I could tell myself, just be a little more patient with life and don't go too fast or don't be so worried about not knowing what the future holds. But, I mean, those kinds of hindsight moments of clarity aside, I I don't think I really have regrets because I actually feel like having my CHD was probably one of the greatest things that could ever happen to me because it gave me a perspective on how to live life fully and vibrantly that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And so living each year like it's my last was really the best way to live.
0: Wow. And how would you define living with no regrets?
1: Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> I think living with no regrets means means l- being present, living in the moment, and living living as if each year is your last, and 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 doing the things you're passionate about, pursuing the things you're passionate about, being kind to others, and having having a perspective that just. Gives a little bit more grace to everyone in your life. Sure.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. No,
0: you're welcome. So do you have any closing thoughts before we go? Anything else that you want to educate, raise awareness on, or just your own personal philosophy of life? Additional words of wisdom?
1: Uh, No, just thank you so much for for doing this, to have this kind of a program and this kind of a medium, I think is um, an incredible educational tool for people out there to know that there's so many of us out there. I personally did not meet another adult with congenital heart disease until I was like in my late 20s. There's so many of us out there that are, you know, you're not alone. There's other people going through what you're going through and with the modern technology and the Internet. You can connect with those people. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, absolutely. And just to a couple episodes ago, again, Susan Frankie, she's got the same, tetralogy flow. She said the same thing. She had never met anybody until I don't I don't remember how long ago, but she went to one of the conferences and she literally walked in the room and started crying because she had never met anybody else with a congenital heart disease, and it was just so overwhelming for her to see that there's so many of us living with it. And then after I posted that episode, I got a really sweet message on my Instagram saying, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, Her son, it was five months, had diagnosed with Tetralogy of Flow, and she was so happy to hear that we're living to adulthood and thriving on top of that. So she would just felt so, like, a relief almost. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good to talk about it, and it helps raise awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, Jimmy Kimmel can't do it all on his own, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know? So I just, I think it's important, and I support ACHA and you and whatever we need to do, right? Thank you. No, thank you.
1: I think, finally, I would just say, um, to reiterate what you just said, that this is a large demographic, a large community, a growing community, and just to encourage people to, like, be a part of that community, get involved in events, reach out. And yeah, there's walks there's, all over the country. Yeah, there's walks, there's conferences, there's um, social meetups, there's volunteer opportunities, there's so many CHD organizations out there, get involved in them, because it's a large, welcoming, affirming community yep. of people. Yep. Great. Well,
0: thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. <laughs> thank you for listening to the No Regrets Podcast with Kate. Be sure to subscribe. You can find this podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or your favorite listening app. Please be sure to subscribe and follow me on Instagram at No Regrets Podcast with Kate. Thank you.